The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Laurel Wilson with me. And Laurel is a TEDx and international speaker, pregnancy and breastfeeding specialist, a consultant, educator, and author. <laughs> She's also the co-author of two books, Attachment Pre- The Attachment Pregnancy and The Greatest Pregnancy Ever. Her passion is blending today's recent scientific findings with mind, body, and spirit wisdom to help professionals and families realize the magnitude and the importance of the perinatal period. Spending 17 years as executive director for lactation programs for the Childbirth and Postpartum Professionals Association formed the foundation of her inquiry into the science of human milk. She's acted as board director for the United States Breastfeeding Committee from 2016 to 2019 and currently serves as an advisor for Enjoy Health and Kindred Media. She has a she has been joyfully married to her husband for nearly three decades and has two wonderful grown sons whose difficult births led her on a path towards helping emerging families create a positive experience. She believes that the joy into parenthood is a life-changing rite of passage and should be deeply honored and celebrated. Amen. (laughs) That's amazing, Laurel. I love it. And don't we all kind of get our start in this birth world by seeing many people start by having their own difficult births, but if not seeing. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I, I think, you know, when I first got into this work, which is almost three decades ago, the majority of individuals who I was working with, we were all kind of processing our own birth experiences and parenting experiences. And our goal really was to, one, help families learn how to advocate for themselves and um, speak up for their needs and desires, and really to help see that there was kind of a rebirthing of the birth movement back in that time. And Mm. it's so exciting to see how things have shifted and changed over the past 30 years. We still have a lot of work to do, but um, I I think that where we were seeing some areas of intense health discrepancy, at least lights have been bright. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Can I go where we were 20 years ago to where we are now? We still have a long way to go for sure, especially in the disparity between uh, races and socioeconomic statuses. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So what is attachment pregnancy? Yeah, so attachment pregnancy is really an opportunity for um, the pregnant parent to really deeply connect and bond with their baby in utero. And I, I think there's so much focus on how bonding occurs from after the birth of the baby. But the reality is, is that bonding is happening really from the moment of conception, whether we are consciously aware of it or not, we are becoming bonded at an unconscious level, a conscious level and a physical level. And the more that we recognize that that is happening and the more that we kind of put mindful awareness to that, the better off, um, the health of our relationship is with our children uh, throughout the rest of our lives, but also we can start to see that it also has 
significant impact on long-term health of the baby as well. So attachment pregnancy is just an opportunity, examples and ideas to help pregnant parents really bond and attach with, with their babies. So what happens if you are in a situation where you just don't want to bond, bond, can't bond, or shouldn't bond with the baby, surrogacy, adoption, uh, traumatic pregnancy, um, somebody who just doesn't want to be pregnant, what happens to the bonding in that? Well, I guess uh, each one of those situations is going to be very, very different. There, there is certainly whether, whether we consciously want it to happen or not, there is a type of bonding connection that is occurring through epigenetic action because whatever is occurring in that pregnant individual's world is also being shared with the baby. So that is a bond that is unbreakable. It's a bond that we will always share. And even if they, the, the parent does not necessarily want to have sort of an emotional bond with the child, a relational bond with the child, there is that physical bond that is occurring. And, you know, ideally, ideally we still would want for this child to have an optimal you know, growth experience, even if that child is going to then be adopted or shared with a a family for surrogacy or, Mm -hmm. you know, in in any of those situations, we can still kind of um, reframe what attachment means at that time. Attachment can mean simply providing the optimal physical opportunity for that child to develop so that the next stage in their development can be um, as healthy as possible. I love that. So if you are pregnant as a surrogate or as a birth mother, you can, you can be, yeah, connecting with your baby in, in like honoring that baby. Like I'm providing this, this environment for you to grow and meet your parents. And I am honored to do that for you type thing. Well, and I, I think there there is actually some data that does show us that parents, even who have a plan to um, uh, have the child adopted, they still have a better individual experience for themselves and for their baby if they do take time to have some connection with that baby, to share with that child you know, what's going on in their lives and what they're struggling with every day. You know, people talk to their babies. There's no reason why we can't on a daily basis share, I'm really struggling today. I hope you know that this is not about you. This is about my situation or or whatever it is. But I want you to know that I'm doing my best to care for you. And, you know, so that your family that you will be um, growing up with, um, you know, can benefit from, from that, from the health that you will experience from, from me. So I I feel as though, and not only just feel, I know that the data supports that the more we do connect to those children, even knowing that they may be growing up with another family, the healthier the parent will be and the healthier the child will be. That makes a lot of sense. Just one more devil's advocate than if you are planning, if you're pregnant and planning to keep the baby. It's part of your family, but you're just not feeling this pregnancy. You feel disconnected. You just feel like there's this dis- complete disconnect between this thing growing in you and and where you are in your heart. What do you... Yeah. You know, and actually I think that happens quite often, particularly if it happens to be um, a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> for or- sure. Yeah. Or there may be financial issues or, you know, just un- unplanned pregnancy. 
Um, but I, I think, again, it's the same sort of thing. Communicate to that child. I'm struggling today. I, you know, I still want you to have everything you need to, you know, to optimize your growth and development, but you need to know that I'm struggling today and I'm going to do the best that I can, that I can every day to be as healthy as I possibly can. And I'm, I'm working, I'm working towards this, you know, and, and I think that this, this sort of um, trust and, and even if there's not an actual emotional connection that we feel Mm -hmm. facilitating a trust with that child, even in the prenatal period to let them know, Hey, (laughs) this is difficult. Life is difficult, but I am doing my best. That kind of honesty and trust is something that we do want to take into our parental relationships. So we don't expect that everyone's going to be joyful and feel this kind of flowers and roses experience, you know, from the moment of um, we identify that we are, we are pregnant, but we're always working on growing ourselves and our relationship with our children. And it's okay to be wherever you are. The key is to be honest with yourself and to be honest with the baby. Babies are conscious, you know, and they they have an ability to kind of, I believe, understand in a way that we really don't give them credit for. So I believe that. Yeah, I I hands down. Man, there are so many quotable quotes in that little <laughs> segment, but I love that just being where you are. I wanted to get that kind of out of the way because when I hear attachment pregnancy, attachment parenting, it it kind of hurts a little bit because I didn't feel with one of my pregnancies that I like I felt completely detached and I really struggled mm-hmm. to bond with the baby and I always had well I had don't anymore feel I figured it out but I I harbored some guilt and about the whole situation for many many years which I think affected my ability to bond with the child as a young child as a toddler mm-hmm. and I feel like a discussion like this would have really put my mind to ease um that it's okay like you said it's okay to be wherever you are uh, yes, it hey. is. It is okay, <laughs> and it, it's it's okay for us to. You know, there are going to be days, even once the child arrives, where we're just like, this take it back. Feeling pretty bonded. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to just go hide in my bedroom. Those days are okay. I, quote: I'm not feeling very bonded today, <laughs> and it's your fault. Go to sleep. <laughs> I love it. Okay, yeah. so now we're going to talk about all of the all of the ways you can bond and all. So, what is the um, what is conscious agreement and conscious attachment? Yeah, so one of the things that um, my writing partner and I kind of discovered in our work as doulas and you know breast and chest feeding supporters and just kind of family support individuals was that we talked we talked a lot to families about informed consent. Um, and, but what informed consent is, is not really what we, we wanted for an individual. Informed consent is providing someone a document of all of the potential risks of something that may happen and you sign it, whether you agree or not. And what we realized was really lacking for a lot of families is that, they weren't taking the time to not only consider all the pros and cons of everything kind of that goes on within your daily world, um, but that we weren't actually connecting what those things felt like for us and what our intuition was really guiding us towards. And so the idea of conscious agreement is really to help you get in touch with how you're feeling and make the best 
decisions for you and your baby in every moment possible. And it it's a really, really simple process, which we called, um, you know, conscious agreement. And the steps to that process, there's four steps. The first one is to separate yourself from external influences. And this is really important because when we make a really important decision about anything, right, we tend to take in input from everything that is around us as opposed to tuning in. So for example, even when we're thinking about what we're going to eat, right? And that's a big part of developing a healthy attachment pregnancy is consciously choosing the foods that we're putting into our body. But if we just sit down at a table with a group of people, we tend to eat not necessarily what our body wants or what our baby wants or what's the healthiest option for us. We're just going to kind of follow what everyone else is doing because we do it in an unconscious manner. So if we would separate If you first, you know, take a moment to breathe, maybe if you're going to lunch with friends, I know we're in a pandemic, but you know, back in the day, if you were going to lunch with friends, maybe sit and breathe for a few moments and think about, you know, what is it that I really want to nourish myself with, you know, but do it away from others. So you're not being influenced by, you know, others thoughts. Second step is to just get quiet and pause. So now you've separated yourself, even if it's just walking to another room. Or sometimes it is just closing your eyes if you cannot remove yourself, but get quiet and take a pause, take a few breaths, center yourself, and then listen in, listen into what your body's telling you. And the reality is you can listen into what your baby's telling you. If you just ask your baby, what in this moment do you want to want me to eat? <laughs> you know, or what pickles. in this moment do you need? Yeah, yeah. It might pickles be and ice cream. <laughs> yeah, it might be, or it might be a Big Mac. And then it, you realize or, I didn't actually need a Big Mac, but I thought I did. <laughs> well, you know, but that's the thing. Sometimes we do need those things because in reality, sometimes we do need the comfort hormones that are released when we eat foods that mm. may not necessarily be great for us, but those hormones may be what our body and our baby needs. So, you know, there's no judgment in conscious agreement. It's just tuning in. It's just becoming more aware. And the final, um, the final step is to, you know, once you've listened, um, in kind of intuitively, then you make a decision and you commit to that decision and you move into your next few moments or hour, whatever, with that knowledge that you've, you've tapped in and moved forward. So you've made an agreement in consciousness. So it's a really simple process. And, um, and it's, it's actually something that's, that really has helped to guide me in my own parenting. I, I noticed that when I was a very young parent, I did a lot of my parenting unconsciously, you know, yeah. I, there are, there were often times when I'd be at the playground with my kids and instead of enjoying being present and focused on my children and enjoying those moments that you never get back in my head, I was like, I've got laundry to do. How am I going to get dinner on the table? What do we even have in the refrigerator? You know, like there are all these things that being in my head and worried about that wasn't going to change, but I missed out a lot on a, out of a, on a lot um, consciously with my, my kids early on in life before I learned about mindfulness and these kind of consciousness. Practices. We hear this joke that we turn into our mothers, but, and that's part of it is that we just are kind of unconsciously parenting. We're just basically in survival mode for how many years? Yes. Yeah. But it's, no, really- I keep telling my baby, I'm like, you're so lucky. She's like, she's all offended because the big kids always get to the front and they get all these privileges. And I'm like, well, baby, you're so lucky because I didn't mess you up. The first, it's like pancakes. The first one is kind of a, it's kind of dicey and she, she's not buying it, but 
<laughs> but it's true. Like I parent her completely differently than I did the first two because I, I, I am more conscious. Absolutely. And we, we learn new tools, you know, like the, the, the first and the second one, they, they kind of get <laughs> so much more of our focus because we're freaked out all the time. Yeah. And, you know, but, and so they, they have that benefit. I know. I was like down the road, you know, we have a lot more knowledge to apply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then what's a uh, conscious attachment then? So a conscious attachment is, is simply using that concept of conscious agreement to connect with your baby. So the steps are exactly the same, step one, two, three, and four, only when you are tuning in, you are literally tuning into your baby. You're taking a moment to close your eyes, imagine the stage of development that your baby's in, imagine how your baby looks, and talk to your baby during that that point. And then the listening is really a two-way listen. You are listening to what you interpret your baby to be telling you and you are sharing what what you feel with your baby so it's kind of this two-way listening conversation and and then you choose and commit and the commitment in conscious attachment is that you are committing not only to yourself to make the best decision but you're committing to your baby so it's kind of this daily hourly monthly experience of consciously listening to your baby and making decisions based on you know, your agreement together. Very, very cool. So what are some of the specific things that we could follow during each different trimester to help that attachment develop? Yeah. So, um, in like first in, trimester, you're throwing up over the throne and you're like, this is not what I signed up for you dumb little parasite. <laughs> Well, we broke it. We broke it down really into um, what we call the the B O N D, the bond. Um, so the first section is being. So that's the B um, in the beginning, and so that very early time, and that is from even if you're planning preconception. So this could be preconception through the first early days when you have kind of discovered that you are you know, harboring this new little being inside. But but that first step is to really start to become more mindful, start to connect with your breath, you know, but it's also, and to learn how to do conscious agreement and conscious attachment. But the other big thing is really starting to build your support system because particularly right now, like this world that we are all experiencing in this pandemic, I think for most of us, we feel like we've lost our support systems. And so that becomes a really important thing. And that very, very early period is who are the people in your life who are supportive? Who are the people who may be toxic? Who are the people who can help me in A, B, C, and D? Identify those people. And we actually have some activities for people to determine, are these people I want in my daily life? maybe to, you know, see them weekly or monthly, or these people who I really need to kind of keep on the fringe of my life due to the toxicity. So that's kind of the first stage. The O is the next stage. And the O is what we call observing. Um, And that is identifying the things you really want to change in your life, right? How stressed are you? How do you manage stress? What do you, we can't change our stress. We can't eliminate it, but we can learn how to respond to it and how to change how we, how we deal with stress. Um, and also, you know, observing, you know, how we want to be with our baby. Um, and also really 
connecting to kind of, again, a deeper um, observation of how we relate to our, you know, very close partners, you know, that might be our partner in parenting, maybe it's our husband, maybe, maybe we are co-parenting with another individual, but looking at that relationship and observing how it's functioning so that we can get better at that. Because here's the other thing that we now know is that babies not only have a relationship with their pregnant parent, they have a relationship to the people mama has a relationship with, right? Mm. Because we, we know there are these things called molecules of emotion, Every time you have a thought or feeling, you release molecules of emotion. And Candace Pert termed those as molecules of emotion. They're just neuropeptides and they float through our blood supply. And when you're pregnant, the placenta sees them, takes those molecules of emotion, manufactures its own and sends them to the baby. So the baby is actually experiencing the emotional content of mom. And as soon as babies can hear in utero, which is, you know, by the end of the first trimester, babies are inputting, getting these molecules of emotion at the same time that they're hearing conversations and they're interpreting what the relationship is between these sounds, these voices, and these emotions. So babies clearly know who their parent gets along with, who they don't, who stresses wow. them out at birth. So it's a re- this is this is the time that first trimester is that time to start looking at you know the deeper um, to take a deeper dive into those relationships. How am I interacting with my primary partner? Wow. How am I interacting with the people who support me? Because I want this baby to have the best relationship possible, right? I love that because we always say, be mindful and tune in and there's hormones at birth, but we never have that connection. And you're saying that actually how we're feeling, we can affect the hormones that are being produced in our body that chemically signal to the baby. So being mindful is actually a physical chemical signal to the baby. It is. And uh, some parents get a little freaked out at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, I, I had a pretty, I've been having a pretty bad couple of weeks. I've not been having the most positive emotions, you know, that I would really want to during, that's okay. I screwed up my baby. I ruined everything. (laughs) We actually want babies during pregnancy to experience the whole rainbow of emotions from anger and, you know, even apathy to joy and excitement and, you know, connection. We want them you know, to experience all of that, because that creates what we call emotional intelligence in a baby, that opportunity to experience all levels of emotion, their hindbrain learns how to interpret them and respond to them. What we don't want for a baby is to be in that chronic, those chronic states of stress and those lower, um, those lower emotional states. One, because it changes the, um, the parent's heart rate, which affect the baby's heart development and the hindbrain of the development mm-hmm. of the baby, but also it's just not a healthy place. Yeah. For well, and, and, um, it's good to have variation in the environment. It's good to have challenges, but just yeah. long-term trauma, long-term bad is, you know, long-term stress that's damaging, but having a one night fight with your partner and the, but then the next day <laughs> reconciling, that's not going to ruin your baby. Right. <laughs> no. And it also, those short term stressors 
actually teach stress hardiness to a baby. Right. So we want babies to have those experience of stress and what we sometimes term as, you know, um, lower regulatory emotions. I don't want to call them negative because they're everyone. I know. I was going to say normal. normal. Yeah. They're normal. They're just lower regulation regulation. Um, but that, that then gets released, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a normal and healthy pattern for babies to experience. So you mentioned the word epigenetic before, and it's not a super common word. It's kind of trendy, you know, trending right now. People are starting to hear it, but what does that mean? And what, how does what you're saying relate to epigenetic with genes and stuff like that? So it's everything. First of all, what is epigenetic? Yeah, sure. So Epi literally means above or outside, and genetics is just your DNA. So the study of epigenetics is how many things in our environment are interacting with our body uh, via protein synthesis, which tell our genes to either activate or inactivate or kind of a variety in between. So things that do this our interact with our DNA in that way are things like our nutrition, our stress levels, our emotional states, um, toxins, even things like the amount of sunshine that we are exposed to on a daily basis. All of these things are interacting with your body through proteins and cause certain genes to activate and inactivate. And so during pregnancy, this epigenetic period, the most important like uh, you mentioned before we even got on this call, like my tagline is um, is about the first thousand days supporting families, you know, to optimize their experience in the first thousand days of life. And that's because this is the most critical period of development for a baby's activation of their genes. When we can really activate the healthiest opportunity for our babies. And that's from the moment of conception through the first thousand days of life. And that's because every organ system is developing, our brain is developing, um, our hindbrain, you know, our emotional hub is, all of these things are activating and or inactivating, depending on, you know, how the gene works. So the input that a baby is receiving from its parent, from its mama in the prenatal environment, and through its very first foods in those first few months of life or few years of life, um, are really, really critical to long-term health. So, so that's, that's why you should definitely put Pepsi in your baby's bottle. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So all the ways you can screw up your baby. Just kidding. No, but so that, that makes a lot of sense. That. So funny you say that because my dad actually used to feed me Coke in my bottle. Well, that explains. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I don't know what it explains. Well, That's what happened to me. Well, I love the story. I don't love the story, but I find the story of the potato famine very interesting about how um, babies born right after the, the famine um, were more insulin resistant, re- re- resistant, and it was because their body in utero was learning that they were coming into a starvation situation, and so they better right. be really, really careful with their food. So babies born after that had higher rates of obesity, even though they hadn't themselves suffered famine, their, right. their mom's bodies when they were pregnant was letting the baby know, okay, turning on all the genes for insulin resistance. Let's make sure we have all of the <laughs> storage capacity for any yes. available food. Yeah. So that's, and that's a physical epigenetic, but uh, what about like emotional and what we would say maybe spiritual epigenetics? Are there things passed on that we, like they say, oh, you're acting so much like your grandma who you've never met. Like, is that an epigenetic type of thing? 
Well, we don't 100% know. I mean, what what we do know about kind of the emotional regulation based on epigenetics really has to do with the development of our limbic system. And, and so a lot of that has to do with really our heart regulation. We are, our hearts are, are in two states of development at all time, or not development, but two states of being at all time. They're either in coherence, and that's basically you have a, you know, a slower heart pattern um, going on. And it kind of looks like gentle waves if you looked at it on an EKG. And when your heart is in that coherent state, it is communicating a state of calmness to the brain. And the brain is then going to hormonally release hormones that are supportive of emotional states of calm. So that's when you're more likely to experience compassion, love, joy, et cetera. And then the other state that your heart can be in is one of dissonance. Okay. And that is, you know, on a EKG machine that looks like all over the place, these little dots up and down, up and down, and up and down. Um, and when the heart is in that dissonant state, it is communicating to the brain. Things are not okay right here in this world. Like mm-hmm. we are stressed out. And yeah. so then the release from the brain are states of anxiety, stress, anger, irritation, things like that. And so during pregnancy, you know, dependent on the heart state of the parent, that heart state is, we know now that our hearts actually influence, they have an influence of eight plus feet with other human beings. So our hearts are communicating with the hearts of people around us. And if you are in a strongly coherent state, you can influence people around you to, to, to move into a coherent state. Just as if you, you are coherent and you move into a room where a bunch of people are angry and irritated, very quickly, you're going to move into that heart state of dissonance with yeah. them because they're in training you. And so in pregnancy, you've got, you know, the parental heart that is only inches above the developing heart of the baby. And so it, the parent's heart, mama's heart had a, has a really strong influence on the development of the baby's heart state as a kind of a regulation. And that heart, the baby's heart, which is the first organ to develop in the baby, is in communication with the development of the limbic system and the baby's brain. So that kind of has to do with personality types. And a lot of people, after they learn this, they kind of look back at their pregnancy and they're like, yeah, this pregnancy was more higher stress. For example, my first child, um, we... Uh, he was a, a wonderful, but definitely a surprised child. We moved to Guam thousands of miles away from any support system to us. We moved to Guam in the middle of a hurricane and had five hurricanes during his pregnancy that we experienced. And I wound up having to have a, um, a forced cesarean section with him. So his, his entire pregnancy was this mm. high stress state. And this, this wonderful man, he's so creative and artistic and wonderful, but he is attracted to high stress, a high stress world. Not necessarily negative, but he he likes to be in situations where it's chaotic. Chaos wow. feels yeah. feels more normal to him. And so he you can, can handle kind of, he can handle yeah. all that stimulation a lot better he, than some of us. He and he needs it. Uh-huh. So yeah. Wow. But that's more of what we know, not necessarily that a specific personality type gets transferred, but it's more like the experience of the parent during pregnancy mm. is the experience of the baby's brain. And well, how you, it- 
we joke around. You're like, well, that baby came when it wanted to, or that baby, um, I had a baby that was just intent on putting his toes between my ribs. I mean, that's all he wanted to do. (laughs) And now even as a teenager, he still wants to like crawl back inside me. And like, he wants to be a lap child. You see those, just Google YouTube uh, or go on YouTube and search baby elephants who think they're lap dogs and you'll know what it's like to raise my teenager. And so you, you laugh about these things. You're like, oh, they're so, yeah, that makes sense now. But what you're saying is there's actually a connection and it's not just a, yeah. Okay. I'm just going to leave it that because you said it so much more gracefully than I could ever say it. That's, that's so cool. Um, just going back to the bond. Um, I don't think we got mm-hmm. to hear the N and the D. So what does no, the N stand no. for? Yeah. So the end is second um, trimester and that's all in is nourishing. So it's all about the nourishment that we provide to ourselves in terms of what types of food are we putting into our body? Foods have huge epigenetic action and the actual building blocks of the baby are based on the foods that, you know, the parent is taking in during pregnancy. So they're actually quite important, not only to the baby's development, but to what happens to them um, based on disease activation for later on in life. So we talk a lot about nourishment, bonding with our partner, because that is another nourishing activity, you know, and, you know, if a, if a pregnant parent doesn't necessarily have um, a, a supportive partner, there are ways to, you know, create this bond kind of just with yourself and your baby. And then the fourth one is, is the D. Okay. And that is our last trimester. That's all about decisions. So this is a period where we want to make really healthy decisions for not just our pregnancy, but what, what do we want the birth to look like? You know, what do we want? What are we thinking about in terms of how we want to raise this child? Um, you know, what is going to be right for our new family? So we focus then that period is really about how do we make healthy decisions? How do we make decisions from a conscious place? And when we find out that maybe our partner's decisions are different than ours or their ideals, what do we do for negotiation strategies there? So again, it's just kind of this, how, how do we create the optimal experience for our baby coming into this new, new family, new world, whatever it looks like? Yeah. And I love that um, it is really decisions uh, that the family makes about what is right for that child. And I love, I'm a very gray person. I love the nuance in human existence. And I love that nature by default gives mothers and and the families jurisdiction over the baby, like to raise the baby the way they feel is best. And that you don't know somebody else's epigenetic stuff. You don't know their family history. You don't know their body composition. You don't know what's in their heart or what's on their plate. And so to judge some, another family on their decisions to raise their child, like we see this all the time, the, the helicopter parenting, you know, the memes the don't vaccinate because you'll kill your baby. But if you don't vaccinate, you're going to kill your baby and don't feed them solids because you'll this. But if you don't feed them solids, they'll this. And it's like, you can't win. And so it's, it's, I love that decisions are part of that bonding process because you get to consciously make those decisions for your family. That's what I hear you saying that you Yes. You get to determine. Yes. I love it. I love you it. Love get it. To determine that. And, and that whole, if you, if you make those decisions from that place of conscious agreement, you know that you're also making those decisions based on what's going to be best for that baby. You yeah. know, you may actually have different parenting styles and strategies and rules for each and every child so in your true. family based on that little human. 
My first child yeah. is a black and white, all or nothing. And we wanted to raise mm-hmm. him with a faith in a, in a creator. And so I decided like early, early on, this is just a side example, but that, that you parent <laughs> depending on your children. But we decided not to tell them, our kids, that Santa was real. Because I was like, if I'm going to tell them that God is real, and then I'm going to tell them that Santa's real, just kidding, when you're eight, you learn out, learn Santa's not real. Mm-hmm. And what does that do? So we, just for that child, black and white. And I've had so many people criticize this. And I was like, you have no idea <laughs> the breaking of the head that would happen if my eight-year-old found out that I had been lying about Santa. We just weren't going to go along that road because we yeah. would like him to develop a faith in, in a creator, whatever that looks like to him. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But we want him to know that no matter what, we always speak our truth. <laughs> yes. Yes. But then I have another child who's like, but mom, what about this gray part of politics? Or what about this unknown of science? And I'm like, I don't know. Ask Google. Like, I have no idea. But, but, uh, they're a very gray child. And so if that had been the first child, we would have parented, you know, with nuance. Like, what does Santa mean? What is this symbolism of a Santa? Like, but that first job couldn't have handled it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, 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 love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just, I love it. My, yeah, my husband, you know, we, when I grew up, there was this focus on equality that whatever my brother got, I got, you know, whatever I got, my brother got, and we didn't necessarily need that stuff or want it, but we, you know, that was a period of equality. My parents are really big into equality. And I think we are now moving into the space of equity that everyone should get what they need when they need it. Not necessarily the same as everyone else. Oh, I love it. It's, it's about what you need. And, and that is how we develop a healthy society. You know, that's how, I mean, that's how we're, hopefully we are going to address kind of these systems of injustice for, for health and health disparities in, you know, around the world. It's not just the United States. It's, it's everywhere is by addressing equity issues, not, not making everything the same for, for everybody. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You've got mm-hmm. to look at the individual. I love what it. does this little one need? And if you've practiced this conscious agreement, oh, I love this. If you practice <laughs> this conscious agreement during your pregnancy and the early years, then you're more prepared when that eight-year-old comes to you with a hard question or there's a hard parenting challenge. You're more, you're more able to tune into what, what you, so this is another, I mean, you haven't said the word intuition, but what you're saying is basically how to grow your intuition, right? How to, how to, to nourish that intuition. It's how to, how to, yeah, facilitate the intuition, but it's also how to facilitate trust between you and that, that little person. You know, I know, I know that now as my children now are adults, you know, they'll often call me because they, they're having a challenge, you know, and that's a new thing for me. Like they never used to want my opinion or my information, but now they'll call and I'll say, okay, tell me the situation. Then I'll say, well, what do you need from me right now? Because sometimes they need really concrete things. Like if it's a financial thing, here's your resources, here's where you go. And sometimes it's just like, you know, I'm just struggling. I just want you to listen to me. So we've developed that ability to have kind of a trust with them and listening to them helps me develop my intuition about what it is they need in that moment. So, wow. Love it. Yeah. Okay, so your TED Talk talks about um, that human milk is a lot more complex than people ever dream. So can you geek out with me on that a bit for a minute? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I I breastfed both of my children and I did it more out of um, a desire to kind of 
be, do, do what I felt was the healthiest choice for them. But I didn't know what that meant 30 years ago. I had no idea you know, why that was. Because 30 years ago is the dark ages. Google didn't even exist. You had a question. You just had to sit with it. You did. You had to order books from the library. Well, how many times do you now just sit there? You have a question come to mind and you just ponder about it. And if you voice it, the younger generation is like, well, let's just Google that. And you're like, I never thought to Google that. I was just ready to sit with that question for years, right? Ponder it, right? Yeah. So, but you felt like it was the right thing to do. I I felt like it was, it was the most important thing that I could be doing for them. And then as the years progressed and I actually, you know, dove headfirst into kind of birth and perinatal um, work, I kind of found myself on this track for, for lactation support. And it wasn't because I was particularly, I, I was a huge breastfeeding advocate. I mean, I knew it was healthy and I supported every family to do it. And I learned how to support them in it, but I wasn't this like, go, go, go. But as I stepped down that path, and as I started to learn about all the components in human milk and how they have not only there, that each component in there has a specific reason to be there. Uh, it just, it, it led me down this, you know, this hole of intrigue. And now I'm in love with human milk for so, so many reasons. Um, but one of the things that I've discovered over the past 10 years, I've really been looking at kind of the epigenetic action of human milk. And, and we now know that human milk activates so many genes in the baby's body. It is providing stem cells that actually wind up in the baby's organ systems for life. It is providing genetic information that is unique to humans and potentially unique to our genetic line. And it is providing immune factors that are also, again, unique to that family situation. The immune factors shift and change based on who we come in contact with, where we are in the world, what kind of foods we're eating. It is a customized medicine for each and every baby. And as I started to really put that together, I started to look at what that meant to us evolutionary, you know, like in evolutionary terms. And what we're now starting to discover is that when human babies don't receive human milk, when they receive the milk from another animal or plant, it has very different genetic outcomes. And we have seen this, you know, we, we have seen, you can actually just look at images of people over the past 80 years and see how like in the United States, as we started to utilize bovine milk as the primary food for babies, we started to see um, our musculature change, our bone structures change, our height change. When you just kind of look at that, because we are now being fed on genetic information for a totally different animal than humans. And so it makes changes for us on an evolutionary scale, a microevolutionary scale, but an evolutionary scale. And the other thing we now know is how important our microbiome is. And our microbiome is all of our microbes and fungi and viruses that live on and within us. And in fact, they're about 60% of our genetic, um, the genetic makeup of a human by the time you're adult. You're only about 40% human genetic information and the rest you're of it's just bugs. <laughs> yeah, you're just kind of like all this stuff. Um, and so how and what you get seeded with in your, you know, from conception through your first thousand days really changes 
how we develop, it changes which hormones we release. It can potentially, potentially, there's some study on this, even change who we are attracted to, right? Some, we now believe that our microbiome actually plays a role in pheromones. So your pheromones help you become attracted to other people. So, you know, like there are all of these things that human milk now play a role in, including maybe who we fall in love with. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm just building a rebuttal here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That, so what do you say though, to the, the saying that is best that if you can't breastfeed, don't stress your baby formula is fine and your baby's going to be fine and you're going to be fine. Just feed the baby. You're saying breast milk. And I, I actually, I agree with you. But in the old days, a baby would die if mama died because there was no milk unless there was a wet nurse or they would adopt the baby to a family with a mom lactating, baby would die. So Mm -hmm. I see formula as a huge grace, a huge, huge grace for the human race. So what, what, what about babies that cannot be fed from the breast? Like, are they then doomed to all sorts of epigenetic plights? Are there like what? So fix it. Yeah. So <laughs> I agree with you that I'm, I'm so grateful that we do have an option of a really safe, um, secondary, actually it's not a secondary, it's probably a, a quadrary option. But the thing is, is that our, our society doesn't really fully recognize how important human milk is yet. And once we do, we are going to see other options. For example, community milk sharing. Oh, yeah, milk banks are exploding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Community milk sharing should be on the table for every discussion of, okay, you know, you, for whatever reason, you're not able to fully support this baby nutritionally on your own milk. Here's the next option, community milk and or donor milk. Donor milk isn't really going to be available for most people unless they have a... Um, really you know, good insurance, uh, insurance, or, you know, a baby who's in the NICU or some other thing like that. Um, but, and then, you know, fourth in line, but then we have all of the science around blood donation because we all know that donating blood saves lives, but mm-hmm. around milk donation, it's still kind of like, Ooh, it, it's like, we're like 50 years behind. We're still, yes. There's still so many hurdles to jump to donate milk. It should be as easy as pumping and giving it to a facility that makes sure it's safe and then distributing it like they do for blood. Right. So, I mean, if we got serious and we really looked at the data and we really embraced this, it wouldn't be this question of, oh, well, fed is best, right? It would be this question of what is the next healthiest option for babies, human milk? How do we get any baby who cannot access their parents' human milk, human milk? How would we do that? You know, yep. there are ways. It's just that infant formula companies have literally billions of dollars to market to families to encourage them to believe that artificial milk is not only safe, but sometimes they convince families that it's actually safer. And oh, they have, there's a whole group that feels like, well, um, that that breastfeeding is gross. It's a bodily fluid. Why want to, Why would you want to feed your baby a bodily fluid when you can feed it this beautifully scientifically formulated mix? I well, mean, and I mean, 
Marketing's My milk is a bodily fluid from another animal. So, I mean, it's all in how we contextualize this. I am not anti-infant formula at all. No, I'm not either. But And I'm very grateful for it. And, um, you know, and I'm glad that we have safe options for that. What I am against is the unethical marketing of infant formula to families. I'm, uh, I am against the, um, essentially the infant formula lobbyists that have taken control of some of our political realms. You know, I'm, I'm against those kind of yeah. behavior so that families don't really have the best options. You know, we no. sh- should be employing better options for families so that they can make educated decisions and do what feels best for them. And I am all for like, you know, I actually don't love these, uh, what we're now calling breastfeeding support groups. I think we should just have family support groups that anyone, however they're feeding their baby can come to and get support and information and be welcomed in. And that way everyone's learning from one another. You're getting good information. You know, like I, I don't like this kind of pitting a uh, breast or chest feeding parent against an infant. Yeah. Formula. And that, yeah, not, no, that. yeah, no, but I, I guess I see it like it's too, ends of the spectrum that if we can meet in the middle, you're saying that we should be um, enlightening ourselves to meet in the middle more that understanding that breast milk, that human milk is number one. If you can't, can't get human milk from parents, then where can we get it from? Donors, banks, whatever, family, community. I breastfed my nephews and nieces. That was a thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's much easier to have anti-babysit than, and not have to prep a bottle. Um <laughs> Yeah, that, and then if that's not available, formula is a wonderful, I mean, thank goodness for formula, but to put the emphasis on finding human milk first over a a scientific option. And again, if that feels right for the parent after they know how important it is, you know, if, if we don't educate families really on how um, the differences between artificial milk and human milk in terms of our epigenome, our microbiome, our immune system. If parents don't know, then there is, it changes how we perceive our options. Yeah. So uh, what about um, people say, well, I couldn't breastfeed, but at least they got a week of colostrum. What, so what do you say, what, where's the line between the most beneficial? I mean, I know the, is it the World Health Organization that recommends breastfeeding up to two years? or to two years. Mm -hmm. And that's for many countries where malnourishment is a big issue. Is that really an issue for us? Can we, so talk talk to me about like the benefits of these different cutoff points and where like, is there any solace in saying, well, at least my baby got colostrum or at least my baby breastfed for three months. I wanted to go to nine, but they only did three. And I celebrate that for every, every person. And the reality is every, every individual's situation is very different. And it is sometimes a total impossibility for families to fully breastfeed. There, there is just not the support. They are in financial situations or work situations that make it impossible, maybe a family situation. And so whatever, whatever feeding looks like for their family you know, we want to support them to have optimal support, whatever that, whatever that looks like. However, um, and not however, cause that sounds like a, but it's, it's, it's not a but. <laughs> I, I don't want to go into the kind of, but, but realm, but what I want to say is that, <laughs> okay, I'm losing track of where I'm going here. What were we talking about? I'm oh, sorry. I'm just, you're so funny. Oh my goodness. I love talking to you. Um, uh, so yeah, we want to support parents, 
But oh, the stages of milk, how much milk they get. Okay. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so here, here's what here's what I tell to uh, parents that they say, well, my baby at least got classroom. I say, that's fantastic. Here are all the things that your baby got as a result of getting classroom. Or if they say, I did the very first feeding of human milk, you know, in the hospital, and then I infant form, I'm like, that is amazing. Here are all the things that your baby got from getting that one feeding of classroom. Yeah, that's what you're saying is that there yes. is so benefit at every stage. Day, yeah, every day is a good day to receive human milk. Every, even, you know, um, even if you're, um, what do you call it? You are bottle and, or infant formula feeding and and human milk feeding. Every, every drop of human milk is positive and beneficial. But we do know that there are what we call critical developmental periods. And there's a critical developmental period for colostrum. So there are a lot of things that if your baby does not experience colostrum in their human gut, it changes how the mucosal layer um, forms. It changes whether or not their epithelial cells shut. So it puts that child at risk for, you know, certain pathogens and allergic reactions and atopy and stuff. And we also know the first um, hundred days of life are the critical period of development for allergies and atopic illness. And that has a lot to do with whether you get human milk or artificial milk. So there are these critical stages that, you know, we would like to see accomplished in terms of optimal health for a baby, but every drop is a good drop. So yeah. I would never tell a parent, well, three months, you should have done two years. Would never say that. Never, to a never. And, and in the case where they can't get any, like in, in uh, adoption or, maybe the death of the mother, something where they cannot get any milk, there's still other ways that you can enhance the baby's gut and help, you know, raise this baby healthy, right? Yes. And, and, and that is another example. For example, adoption. Many parents don't even know that they can lactate. I know, I know. Really quick. We, we are over time, but you were way too oh, fun sure. to talk to. Um, yeah. Adoption. I had no idea you can actually induce lactation. Yeah. So then yeah. would you, if you're doing that, would you get colostrum or would you go right to the milk? How does that work hormonally? Eat so out. you you would start in a, well, it depends on how you're doing it. It really depends on how, how you're doing it. But generally, um, generally you'll start with a colostrum state and, and then eventually it will, it'll move on. on. But that also has to do with whether or not you're using um, a hormonal supplementation. Like yeah. Some people Progesterone and things like that, and then they abruptly stop. So it depends on how how you are inducing the lactation. And this is totally digression, but I really want to go here just for a second. Um, that that dads can actually lactate. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone, I mean, any human potent has the potential because we are all we all develop what we call a mammary line, and so we all have basically the fundamentals to make milk. It's just that hormonally, those who are XX have a physical change during puberty that enables them to make milk more easily, and then during yeah. pregnancy the hormones support that even more. So for those who are XY individuals, they may have to go through a little bit of additional hormonal support, external hormonal support, but they absolutely can. They can. I just heard a story. One of my friends had a son whose whose mother of the baby left right after birth, just left Mm -hmm. and left the baby with the the dad. And he goes up to her and he goes, mom, there's stuff coming out. Like what is this? But he was the sole carer of this newborn and he was young and he started lactating and she's like, love it. Awesome. (laughs) 
great book. It's called Fresh Milk and it's quite old by now, but it's this woman who just interviewed individuals around the world and their feeding experience um, around the breast. And there's this one story of this dad whose wife was, I think she was undergoing cancer or something. And so every day when his wife went into the hospital, he had to sit with the baby in the car and the baby was a newborn. And so it would start attaching and latching on and it wasn't getting milk, but it was getting comfort from Oh, I love that too. Mm -hmm. And he said this one time he was sitting there breastfeeding his baby and he looks up and there are all of these tourists who are taking pictures of him. (laughs) breastfeeding his his little baby and he was like oh my god I need to tell my wife that I've been breastfeeding our child yeah I need to be be on the internet you brought up another point that even if there's no milk, there is so much comfort and bonding that happens with the for the baby and for the person who's chest feeding. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love and that's what I love the the term chest feeding. I think still think um you know, by far, most people that breastfeed are are identify as a woman. But I love the concept of chest feeding because it allows for so much more <laughs> nuance. And yes, yeah, yeah, I love it. Oh my goodness. Okay, yeah. so one thing, one last thing. Okay. What's the biggest thing about lactation or breastfeeding that you wish everybody in the world knew that we haven't already pummeled them with in this episode? Oh goodness, the one thing that I wish they all knew. Um, Well, I I think for me is that um, human milk causes a micro evolutionary change in your baby and it's supporting your baby to have um, really to shift and change its health to protect the next generation as well. So um, Mm. I think that's for me, that's kind of where my focus is right now is really on how every generation we're really sharing our genetic information through the epigenome based on how we, how we live and how we experience our lives in each and every generation. And so breastfeeding is kind of this micro evolutionary event that will influence the health of the next generation on. I love it. I know one time on my birthday, I told my baby boomer mother, I said, mom, thank you so much for birthing me out of your vagina and making the sacrifice to breastfeed me. And she looked at me and I was like, no, really mom. Thank you. Thank you. Cause it was a sacrifice, you know? And she's like, she didn't know what to make do with it, but I told the universe I was grateful. So I get credit for the the gratitude, even if she thinks I'm with So (laughs) that's so lovely. (laughs) Thank you so much. So how do people find all the things that you've done? Um, So my website is motherjourney.com and my social media handles are Mother Journey Laurel Wilson. So you can find me on various social media at Mother Journey Laurel Wilson. So you can find me there. And you can, you can also Google your TED Talk. What would they Google to find you? Laurel Wilson TEDx? Laurel Wilson TEDx or Laurel Wilson Human Milk, that it'll come up. There we go. Very Mm -hmm. cool. And then as always, if you have any questions about this episode or want me to reach out to Laurel on your behalf, you can contact me at media at birthcircle.com. And thank you so much, Laurel. This has been absolutely divine. So fun. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.